And good morning, or good evening, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that really kind of magical time between dusk and dawn, where on this program, which reaches all over the world, um, we talk about almost anything. Now, as I've said many times before, it used to be that at this time of night, the things you talked about were the things that nobody would ever touch in prime time or daytime. That is no longer true. In fact, it's so not true that uh, if you tune in any of the major networks, what you see in here could almost have been lifted right out of science fiction. And I don't need to go into detail because all of you at one time or another are dipping in and out of mainstream news to kind of check on to see is the world uh, kind of really still there? It's not the world we used to know, um, and maybe it never will be again. I don't, I don't know. Um, I have two important items at the top of the show I want to tell you about before we swing into uh, the conversation with our very special guest tonight. For one thing, I'm going to blow our own horn. As you know, these programs are all competing for audience, for ratings, for share, you know, all those technical terms for basically how many people are listening. Well, TalkStream Live published this week their annual ratings, and they, they survey through that interconnected, very complicated Internet system about 36 million listeners on thousands of programs that they carry, um, but they only list the top 50 and uh, drum roll, I don't have a drum roll. We made the top 20 out of untold thousands of programs and obviously the top 50 that they're actually publishing, which means that of that 36 million people who listen to TalkStream Live, we have a very interesting major share of the audience. So be careful what you say when you call in be careful what you say because you never know who's listening. Now, they also publish another ratings uh, poll. It's not really a poll. Polls are you know, statistical. These are real numbers. These are actual number of live listeners who are listening to these streams. And that's their subgenre of what they call, and I hate this, the paranormal. You know, there is no such thing as the paranormal. If it's going on, it's normal. It's just not maybe familiar. Maybe they should have called it the parafamiliar. Anyway, um, out of uh, a survey of 13 million listeners on the subgenre network of TalkStream Live, which is the paranormal network, we came in number four out of, um, I think it's, uh, uh, I forget how many, it was 20 or something like that. And the first is, um, I think, uh, uh, Clyde Lewis, been on his show many times, then Jimmy Church, then George Norrie, you know, Coast, and then us. Now, when you consider the disparity in streams, I mean, I know for a fact that George has something like 600 uh, ground radio stations which are carrying the show, his show, and each one of those has a... Uh, stream, a live stream connected through the internet. That's why the uh, 
service we're connected to called TalkStream Live is called a stream because these are monitoring, surveying the streams of live listeners. So being number four, when George has 600 affiliates and I think we've got maybe two, I think. I haven't kept track lately. I know one of them, our kind of Southern California flagship, is KCAA. You might want to in Southern California, if you're over there, listen to us on uh, KCAA. It's delayed. It's not live. It's delayed. But um, anyway, that's a pretty good audience tally for a show which began only in 2015. Is that five years ago? Oh, my God, it is. Five years. Art called me up and said, hey, would you like to do a show? And I very dumbly said, yeah, why not? <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm being a little facetious. And I want to thank every one of our listeners who listens and I, I want to recommend very strongly that you um, you become a member of Club 19.5 because even though we have a lot of listeners, we don't have an overwhelming num- number of members of Club 19.5, which is one of life's little mysteries because, you know, we live in an asynchronous universe. For those of you who are not night people, who are not, you know, up at this time and traditionally listen to radio – um, there's a lot of people who commute, who listen to us, you know, on these various streams at their convenience, not at ours. And so if you want that convenience of having us available 24-7 anytime, and we have literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of shows we have done over half a decade. I can't believe I'm saying this. Half a de- Well, technically, it won't be really half a decade until July, but eh, who's counting? As we used to say in the old days, close enough. For folk music. Anyway, we're going to be talking about a mystery, a 400-plus-year-old mystery, which to this day has not really adequately been resolved. Item number two in my Radio with Pictures. By the way, if you want to know how to get to Radio with Pictures, and you may want to uh, you know, jot this down because our guest has some very interesting items in her section, uh, you go to our homepage, which is the other side of midnight.com and you click on that beautiful banner showing who we think is William Shakespeare on the right and we're going to clear up the mystery of who the guy is on the left that's the cover of my guest book we're going to talk a great deal about tonight and you'll obviously notice when you look at that banner that graphic that there's an interesting similarity now is that coincidence or is that leading us in some interesting direction we will find out in the next three hours. Anyway, if you click on that banner, which is for January 11th, tonight's January 11th, that will take you to tonight's guest page. Um, at the very top, you know, you'll find right under the, um, well, let's see, where will we find it tonight? Oh, it's under my little uh, pricey, what we're going to talk about. It says show page under my name, Richard C. Hoagland there. Click on uh, Richard, and that takes you to tonight's uh, Click on the fast links that takes you to tonight's radio of pictures. For me, item number two is what Megan wants, Megan gets. Royal experts on the Sussexes' decision to quit their royal family roles. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really a big, big fan of soap opera. And I generally seem to feel that a lot of this stuff is in the category of soap opera. Um, 
this isn't. This is something very interesting. This is a window into the um, House of Windsor, the royal family of Britain, the head of the British Empire. Uh, and a part of that family, namely Prince Harry and his new wife, one-year-old new wife, Meghan, um, they want to split. They want their own lives. They want to make their own money. They want to pursue their own careers. And it's caused an extraordinary tumult in the royal family. Um, without going into the details, and the reason I picked this particular news item is because this is a listing of so-called royal experts. These are people who are paid by the media in Britain, the tabloids primarily, to follow the royal family and to write down when they sneeze and when they go to church and when they don't go to church and when they attend Christmas with the queen and when they don't attend Christmas with the queen and, you know, all that. It's, it, well, soap opera. But in this case, it's a window into the ruling family that runs the esteemed and ancient and historic British Empire, which once was the largest empire in the modern world. So for that reason alone, I think it's more than soap opera. And for those of you who are interested in world events and world affairs and the climaxing arrival of simultaneous curves in many different fields, you may want to keep an eye and an ear on this because it's more, from my assessment, it's more than just Harry and Meghan wanting to break free. This is symbolic of something deeper going on with the crown, going on with the House of Windsor, going on with the world and where we are on this first uh, Actually, it's the second uh, weekend of 2020, the second decade of the 21st century, which leads into my guest tonight, which is uh, going to be a fascinating conversation because Catherine Children is an independent scholar who has studied the Shakespearean authorship question for over 30 years. A graduate of UCLA with a BA in history, Children became interested in the controversy that will not die when Charlton Ogburn, author of The Mysterious William Shakespeare, published in 1984, appeared in a TV debate with a Shakespearean professor. She then started doing her own research. You know, we have citizen scientists on, uh, on the show all the time. Well, Catherine is a citizen English researcher. She eventually published two anthologies about the 17th Earl of Oxford and acted as editor of the Shakespearean Oxford newsletter. In 2003, she was asked to debate English professors on the topic at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Children was inspired to write Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works, published in 2011 and reprinted in 2016, after hearing a prominent English professor insult doubters of the traditional Shakespeare on national television. The book took almost seven years to complete and earned her an award for Distinguished Scholarship. I'll do that again. Distinguished Scholarship. I'm a little under the weather tonight, so please forgive me. From Concordia University in Portland, Oregon, in April of 2012. 
The book, as we said before, was reprinted in 2016. Catherine was one of the contributors to Contested Year 2016, which uncovered very interesting but shoddy scholarship in a recent book about King Lear, published by a prominent Shakespearean professor who shall go unnamed. So without further ado, Catherine, welcome to the other side. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your show, and congratulations on those fabulous ratings. <laughs> well, it's really, you know, a tribute to the audience. You know, they, uh, my grandmother used to say the cream rises to the top, and apparently yeah. a lot of people have found that what we're doing and the folks we talk to appeals to them. I just wish a few more would join the club because without that, we're going to have to go to oh, horrors, commercials. And I've been trying to avoid for five years mm. going to commercials. Yeah. When you when you listen to some of these major talk shows, you know, I mean, when I do Clyde show, you sit there for 20 minutes when commercials are playing. And then you have maybe 10 minutes to make a point, And just as you're going to get to your next point, oops, there comes another 20 minutes of commercials. Well, that it really kills conversation. So I've, I've, I've tried to avoid that at all costs uh, with an underline of the word cost. So the more people who join Club 19.5, which is really an incredible bargain. I mean, it's like 33 cents a day, 33 tetrahedral cents a day. We did that deliberately. Uh, the more likelihood this show can stay on the air because, frankly, the uh, vicissitudes of economics of doing this for a global audience is not trivial and enough of, you know, touting our own horn. Let me, let me dive right in Catherine to what really fascinated me. How did someone with a bachelor's in history ever get wound up in this bottomless black hole of who was William Shakespeare? Really? Well, um, you hit, you said it very succinctly in, in my, Opening in the opening bio, um, I saw in essence a debate on television about who was the great author, and I knew nothing about it. I was completely impartial, and um, I saw Charlton Ogburn representing the Earl of Oxford as being the great author, versus a, a, a prominent Shakespeare professor from a you know big university. Uh, defending the man from Stratford, and that is the person that orthodoxy believes wrote the works. Um, and I saw Charlton Ogburn making point after point after point that was making perfect sense, whereas the supposed expert, the Shakespeare professor, all he could do is, you know, call him names or, you know, just say, oh, this is a nice mystery detective story, but it's not real. Uh, he couldn't defend himself with facts. And I thought that is very odd. So, of course, I read The Mysterious William Shakespeare. And from that point on, I just wanted to tell everybody about it. I just thought it was the most important thing in the world because we're talking about one of the titans of Western civilization, uh, the, the greatest, really the greatest author who, who ever lived. Well, and, you, you um, have a couple of very interesting quotes, which I thought I would, I would read. Um, if I can find them, they're somewhere here. I know, I know, I know. Well, you may know them by heart. You know, the James Joyce quote? Here it is. I found it. After God, 
Shakespeare created the most. I mean, that's astonishing. Yes. But when yes. you read Shakespeare, it's kind of like, okay, I can, I can see why the great, incredibly, almost immortal poet James Joyce would think that. Then you have a quote from uh, an English professor, Harold Bloom, who wrote a book called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. And he said, Shakespeare not only invented the English language, but also created human nature as we know it today. I mean, they're not, yes. they're not, you know, slouch credits. So, all right, here's yep. my, here's my big, when I first encountered this mystery many, many years ago, which wound up involving a tomb somewhere in Virginia that somebody claimed might be the real internment place of the real William Shakespeare. And it's been so many decades, I've forgotten all the details and I, you know, kind of lost track with that part of the mystery. When I first heard about this, I, my reaction was, you got to be kidding. It's almost half a century. How can anybody be debating something that occurred in a literary land like England with all kinds of town records and, you know, monks that wrote things down and, you know, clerics and a bureaucracy and, I mean, we're not talking, you know, Assyria or Sumer or some ancient prehistoric civilization. We're talking England. Come on. How could there possibly be any doubt? And yet when I started reading the background, it's like, what? This is really bizarre. So take us on a journey. Talk to us, Catherine, tonight about the bizarre and why this mystery will not die. Well, um, the reason it won't die is because uh, there are so many unsolved problems about Shakespeare. Um, uh, your listeners might not know that we don't have an exact chronology of when the plays were written. Uh, professors still don't know after 200 years. What was the first play he wrote? What was the last play he wrote? How many plays he wrote, all that's a big zero. They don't know. Um, we also have problems of early versions of plays that are like Shakespeare. For example, um, there's an early play called The Famous Victories of Henry V, very similar to Shakespeare's Henry V. Uh, there's a, a, an early version of King Lear, L-E-I-R, and Shakespeare's play is King L-E-A-R, Lear. And yet, they're two different plays. There's a, a manuscript exists called Timon, but Shakespeare also wrote a play called Timon of Athens. So what's going on here with these early versions that Shakespeare, he adopted those and created them uh, on his own? Or did he plagiarize from him? So that these are more problems. What what do we do with these plays? Let me stop you there. This is this is scholarship yes. that I frankly have never heard of because yes, you know yes. I mean uh, Vice President Joseph Biden, who was running you know was part of the Democratic field for the uh, uh, Democratic nomination to become the candidate against Donald Trump, his early political career. To become president, he ran for president right after he became a senator decades ago, 
was completely derailed by accusations that turned out later to be true of plagiarism. And really? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the idea that William Shakespeare, the great poet, could have plagiarized in the period and scholars aren't tearing at their hair to try to get to the bottom of this and have not solved it in 400 years, again, it's another layer of this resonant continuing mystery which confounds ordinary logic, doesn't it? Right, right. And you you take those problems, and there's a lot more, um, with, with the fact that we don't have any literary biography, lifetime literary biography of the person that we're attributing the works to, the man born in Stratford-on-Avon. It's a big zero. We don't have evidence of his schooling. We don't have any thing in his handwriting other than those six signatures that is on the on your website right um i put on that that are barely by, by a person who can probably barely hold his, a pen <laughs> um we we don't have any payments to a shakespeare for writing or being an actor um we don't uh have any uh Notice of his death, the Stratford man died in 1616. He was supposedly the great author, William Shakespeare, whose plays were very popular. Okay, hang on, hang on. You keep referring to the Stratford man. I think right up front we need to to separate these two identities. Yes. There is a real living person who we have birth records and death records and all that, and his name was William Shakespeare with maybe a, a different spelling. And we know he was a real person and he lived and died. Then there's this great poet named William Shakespeare. And the big confusion is not did a William Shakespeare ever live, but is the living guy or the now dead guy the same guy that wrote the plays? And that's where the mystery begins because your scholarship and a lot of other scholarships says no way, Jose, could this illiterate um, money changer. I mean, he literally was kind of like a amateur banker at some point in his life. He could not have written because there's no evidence, and we'll talk about what kind of evidence would stand up in court that the that the real guy is any relation to the poet guy. Correct, and we we call this money lender person of the Stratford man because he was born in Stratford on Avon in 1564 and and he died in 1616 so we're you know we're talking about the 16th century and there were many as you mentioned earlier many 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 records during this period we have letters from many writers of the period that have survived we have play manuscripts that have survived um we have a lot of material and yet there's not one scrap of a plain manuscript that has survived? I mean, it's just, it boggles your mind. We're talking about maybe 40 or more plays. So what? where is any trace of this uh, great author? Okay, and, talk, you know, talk, when you have all these problems, it lends itself to... Hang on, hang on. Oh, talk a bit about the kinds of evidence that scholars use to validate literary figures well um there is lifetime evidence and there's posthumous evidence 
And if you look at the lifetime evidence... So when you, evidence, when, when you say lifetime, you mean yeah. con- contemporary? With the, yes. with, the, well, with the lifetime Ronald, of the... The man was alive. Right, yeah. right, okay. And what do we have for the Stratford man? All we have are his christening record, his marriage records, his lawsuits, his um, owing taxes, his... Uh, the, actually, he was deposed for a lawsuit, so we have that. We have his deposition. Um, but we don't have anything of a literary nature or anything of touching on education, which is primary. <laughs> and, um, you know, what I just mentioned to you, it's, it, it's of no relevance. So really, if, if you open a Shakespeare biography, a, lo- a lot of them are, you know, a good deal of speculation because they just simply don't have anything to go by. And that's why we have problems with play dating, uh, play chronology. We, we don't know. We don't have a life to match the works with. <laughs> and um, so all of that lends itself to the idea that there wasn't the, – the great author was not born William Shakespeare. He used the name William Shakespeare as a pen name. Okay, and so about, hold, it, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Catherine Children, who is a um, – Shakespearean scholar, um, citizen Shakespearean scholar. She has a degree in history, but that's not English. And she got captivated by this mystery, which I hope you will do too. This is kind of like our Elizabethan evening. So listen to some Elizabethan music as we go to break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs 19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. 
Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight on this Saturday night for January 11th. I mean, my God, half the month is gone. The year is – I mean, you better fasten your seatbelts, folks, because things are popping in all kinds of directions except for one thing. Catherine, let me bring you back in here. How in the face of really stark, you know, legalistic evidence that would stand up in court – in any court in the United States, certainly, and probably in Britain, how can this still resonate with anybody that there there has to be a different person who wrote all these immortal plays than the poor guy there in Stratford-on-Avon who barely, as you said, could write his signature six times and was you know, legally what we would currently define as illiterate. Yes. Um, well, um, I I don't know what is uh, preventing people from accepting this evidence. Um, it's perhaps because they're looking at the gatekeepers who are the professors of Shakespeare at the university's levels, and um, and really they they're constantly kind of saying no. We don't want to. You know, there to us, there's no controversy. And that's it. And so every time we try and make some, show some new evidence and we break new ground, they, they don't listen to us. <laughs> and so this gets perpetuated. But um, on my end, you know, I'm passionate about this because the man is, it's time for him to get justice. You know, um, if you wrote Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, I mean, wouldn't you want to get credit? And um, and also I I I, I do this because there are so many people who love Shakespeare. They read the works. They you know they watch them made on movies. They 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 go to the theater to see it, and they are missing out on the whole rainbow of facts that would just light up the plays if you had the correct biography. And as I mentioned earlier, it is the Earl of Oxford who was the man who was writing the works under the pen name William Shakespeare. No, wait, wait, wait. That is your model, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Just want to make clear because there are other folks, myself kind of included, that has had a kind of a fondness for uh, Sir Francis Bacon as the guy. Yes. um, Bacon – 
it's was is a logical choice because he had a fabulous education, but he was more focused on science and philosophy, and he wrote an, a huge body of works. So Shakespeare also wrote a huge body of works. So two huge bodies bodies of work in one lifetime is not that realistic. Um, but the Baconians, um, they're the ones who started out right off the bat saying the Stratford Band could not have been the, the true author. They brought out great evidence, and they really held the torch until up until uh, 1920 when the founder of our theory uh, published his book. And actually, on March 4th, it's the 100th anniversary of Shakespeare identified by J. Thomas Loney. Hmm. And in fact, we're going to have a celebration at the press National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on that date, on March 4th. So um, pretty much from that point on, um, I would say the majority of Shakespeare doubters are, are the Oxfordians, and I would say less so for the Baconians. <laughs> but okay. I mean, my hat's off to them for, for really starting you know, the question. Well, the, you know, uh, Catherine, when you say that we have a body of work from, from Bacon that's, that's extraordinary and you wouldn't expect one man to do two, why not? I mean, if, if we're in the realm of the unbelievable, why not two miracles as opposed to one? I mean, frankly, the fact that you've got such a persistent mystery regarding who is the real William Shakespeare when there's a real guy that we know lived and died in Shakespeare on uh, Shakespeare Stratford on Avon and yet we can categorically say from the evidence and I want to get back to the evidence in a minute that he couldn't have been the guy there's no way that he could have been the guy why not right. someone like Bacon because if you have a super genius walking amongst you why not two bodies of work as opposed to one well, um, he was not known as a poet or playwright, so that kind of is uh, to his detriment. Which um, would be the excellent reason why he, he, he which is why he wouldn't have published under his own name. I mean, if there are layers of concealment, you know, as a writer, uh, I've only had one piece ever published in the old Omni magazine that did not have my name on it, and the reason was that I had written this. Tome. Well, it wasn't really a tome, but it was a, the first major, you know, encapsulation of our work on Sidonia. And when I submitted it to uh, the Omni editors, they so mangled it and brought in specious, you know, trolls. We call them now. Mm. That I was so affronted that I said, "Take my name off that." It's the only piece that ever was published in Omni without an author. But, of course, the situation with Shakespeare is totally different. It seems like someone wanted to slide in under a totally different identity an extraordinary body of work, which literally, you know, as your, as your uh, Harold Bloom said, you know, invented human nature as we know it today, which is a extraordinary marker in human history. And they did not want to be known, meaning – Ego had nothing to do with it, which is totally in violation of every author, including me, that I've ever known. You're right. Yes. Um, well, um, I I think that if you look at the life story of the Earl of Oxford, 
against Bacon. There, there's a lot of life parallels with the plays, especially Hamlet. And even the Orthodox Shakespeare professors will tell you Hamlet's probably the most autobiographical. Mm. So, okay, well, um, let's not jump ahead. Let's, 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 let's try to do this chronological. You say there, was, right, a, there right. was a real guy who lived in Stratford-on-Avon. Talk about the whole idea of Stratford being the place of William Shakespeare's birth, because even in that, there's interesting contradictions like changed monuments and disappearing statues and you know folios and all. In other words, let's 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 build the foundation, as the lawyers would say, by evidence point by point that the guy who we know was Shakespeare in Stratford on Avon could not possibly in any realistic writer's projection that we can think of, have written these extraordinary plays. Yes. Well, um, uh, first of all, uh, his name was pronounced in documents as Shaxper. It was these documents spelled the name phonetically. He was not writing it. Someone else was writing it. And it was always spelled like S-H-A-X-P-E-R, Shaxper, or S-H-A-C-K-S-P-E-R, Shaxper. So, Pretty much his name was William Shakespeare, based on the majority of documents relating to the man from Stratford. Um, if you look at the lifetime evidence for the Stratford man, you know, you're hungry for anything having to do with the theater, right? Well, he was associated with the theater. Um, he received a payment uh, for a performance with two other people. He was deputed to be a receiver of payment for this play. That was in 1595. He was about almost 30 years old at that point. That's our very first record of him um, and the theater, an intersection. And then a couple years later, he is uh, a theater, uh, named as a shareholder for the Globe Theater, a William Shakespeare. Um, and then a few years after that, he was uh, a shareholder for the Black Friars Theater, so, and then a couple of. In, so this uh, is this is the guy. This is the guy you call Stratford Man. The Stratford Man. Yeah, the, man from the, Stratford. the the real yeah. person as William a part Jackson. as a part from the mystical magical poet. Right, the, the poet of Hamlet. Yes. Um, so the the Stratford Man was also listed as uh, a member of the King's Men Acting Company in 1603. So we do have an association with acting, and we have an association with the theater, but no, absolutely no evidence of writing, you know. Mm. So you can be a theater shareholder and um, an actor, but that doesn't mean you're a writer as well. So that is all of the lifetime evidence that we have for the Stratford Man. Um, which is no evidence at all for him being a writer. So it's all Well, let, let, me, let me stop you again because yeah. as a writer, I can't tell you how many partial drafts, changed drafts back in the days when we had typewriters and paper and all that. Now, of course, it's all saved electronically. I mean, there's a whole trail behind any writer of efforts to do something. And then finally, there's the, the final manuscript, the final draft. But there's all kinds of breadcrumbs showing that creative process, and you say for the great poet, the William Shakespeare literature, there is literally zero evidence of any partial plays, any half-completed works or whatever. We've got these 
existing, what, 40, give or take, and that's it. Yes, it, that's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. I it, mean, It's unbelievable. When, it's not human. It's unbelievable, and not even a letter in his handwriting. Oh, wait, 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 wait. If you look at the Stratford man's will, he doesn't even make a mention of books. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a complete washout for the Stratford man. So, 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 so people get the right idea. We have literary works, personal letters, you know, trivial things like shopping lists, all kinds of stupid stuff recorded, not just from famous people in the Elizabethan era, but from just ordinary folks. And yet we have zero of the great man himself. And even from Stratford man, there's nothing indicating he ever laid pen to paper except for these signatures on various legal documents. Correct. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. So it makes you wonder. We, we don't have any evidence of his education as well. Um, they, you know, this, the professor will tell you, oh, he went to the local grammar school. Well, you know, do you know what the type of knowledge that Shakespeare had? I mean, he knew Latin, Greek, French, Italian. He knew the Bible. Um, he knew medicine. He, well, there's over like 600 medical terms. Uh, he knew astronomy. He knew rhetoric. I mean, these are types of uh, subjects that are not taught at the local grammar school. Military, <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit of Latin, military, but not Italian. Military strategy? Yes, military, uh, seamanship, the law. Um, you know, they had law schools back then, and they have the records of the student records of, you know, who attended there back then in the uh, 1500s. We, they exist. No William Shakespeare is, is noted in there. Um, in and, fact, and hang on, uh, we, we know that Stratford Mann really never left Stratford, right? No, I think he did leave Stratford. I think he was involved in the, in the theater. He was involved in the theater. You mean but he went to London? The problem is there were two William Shakespeare's involved in the theater. One was a man using a pen name, William Shakespeare, and the other man was a Stratford Mann, the man born with that name. And the, the two got confused. And that is not an odd, you know, it wasn't that unusual, unusual a name, William Shakespeare. I came across in records a William Shakespeare in 1605 in the county of Warwickshire, which is the same county as the Stratford man. Um, he, he was enlisted as a soldier. His name was William Shakespeare, okay, <laughs> or Shakespeare. So, it, you know, there were other people named William Shakespeare during that period. So um, during this period, there were two poets named John Davies. So, you know, there's no reason why there couldn't have been two William Shakespeare's. And uh, hence, thereafter, the mix-up occurred, which um, I think was deliberate. And, well, uh, wait, wait, wait. You said two contradictory things. You said the mix-up, and then you say deliberate. If it was a, just a mix-up, wouldn't 400 years of good scholarship have realized, oh, there's something really wrong here? I mean, to me, this looks like a plot from the beginning, a carefully chosen plot resting on the idea there was a real guy named Shakespeare, Shakespeare, whatever, 
who was connected somewhat to the theater, and the rest of it was was basically an extraordinary, deliberate plan to to plot with human beings to plunk down in the middle of humanity in Great Britain in the 16th century this extraordinary body of work, which, as your friend Bloom says, remade human nature. Right. Am I reaching? Um, well, I no. I think I think you're right. It was, and I think that. It happened after both the great author and the Straffer man had died. I think it was contrived after that time. And, you know, that's when uh, on the website, your website, the, the picture of the first folio, a book mm-hmm. with that famous image. And below it, we have the, uh, the monument to Shakespeare in Stratford-on-Avon. And these are the two keys to the whole to the whole uh, confusion or deliberate hoax, in my opinion. And um, okay, are we talking about your radio with pictures section, your items? Yes. Okay. Yes. So let me tell folks how to get there again. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. You click on tonight's banner for uh, Catherine Children, and that's for January 11th. That will take you to her guest page. Click on near the top of the page. You'll see fast links to Catherine's items. Click on that, and that will take you to um, her very interesting set of of uh, items, starting with number one, which these are the, what, six signatures of the Stratford Man, the real Shakespeare, Shakespeare, whatever. Uh, right. The only, the only signatures, we they all look different. Yeah, they're all different spelling and different, it looks like different hands <laughs> um, or a person who had trouble holding a, a pen. It's mm. kind of shaky. So three of those signatures are from his will and each page of his will and the, the other this three is, are this is, from This is now Stratford legal. Man, the real guy. The Stratford Man, 100% the Stratford Man, yeah. And um, so that's all we have. No letters, no manuscripts, nothing. Um, and um, Beneath it is a title page from Hamlet, the first time it was in print. And if you click on it, you can see that there's a hyphen between shake and spear. Oh, yeah. Author's line. Yeah. And so that occurrence, we're talking about about almost 50% of the time the name was spelled for the great author, had a hyphen in between. Shake and Spear, indicating a made-up name, a descriptive name of spear shaking. And a spear shaker during this period was also known as a jouster. So someone who is using a, a spear and, you know, and competing. It's kind of a warlike action. You mean like, so, a, like, uh, a, like a medieval knight? Sir Lancelot, right. that kind of thing? Right. Actually, it, it, is a me- it was a medieval sport, but it was um, revived during the Elizabethan era, um, which is when Shakespeare was alive. And, um, and I would say we're in the Elizabethan era right now because of Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. That's yeah. one of the reasons I wanted to bring up what's going on with the, uh, the crown. Right. Game. Right. So, um, the, the, you know, a hyphen in the name by itself is not 
to me strong evidence, but when you look at the cumulative evidence, how there's no literary biography for the, you know, the Stratford man, there's no connection to education or writing, it makes sense that the name really was someone's pen name. There really wasn't a great author named William Shakespeare. It was a pen name. So you're not going to find a Shakespeare play manuscript um, in, you know, with the name William Shakespeare or a letter signed William Shakespeare because he, he had another name, <laughs> in my opinion, the Earl, Edward de Vere or the Earl of Oxford. So, yes, we have letters that have survived for the Earl of Oxford. But anyway, we, we, we won't go there yet. We're, we're jumping ahead. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's talk about his but, family um, because the real guy, Stratford Mann, he had children. He had grandchildren. He had neighbors. And none of them have ever breathed the word, certainly not now, but in, in terms of the contemporary history, that this guy was anything of a writer at all. And his hometown didn't commemorate him. Uh, exactly. For, for, for 100 a, years. Yes. Um, first of all, the Strapper man, um, his parents were illiterate, so he was born in an illiterate household. Hmm. And also his children, the Strapper man's two surviving daughters were also illiterate. So to me, that's a, that's a great uh, you know, negative. Um, somebody who's the most literate man in the universe and who has heroines who are very educated, who write letters in the plays. Um, he, he didn't care to educate his own daughters. That doesn't make sense. And one, one of his daughters, um, when she married, she married uh, a doctor, Dr. John Hall. Uh, I believe he went to Cambridge. And anyway, he settled in Stratford-on-Avon and had a practice. And he never, in his uh, uh, casebooks for patients, that manuscript has survived, and he makes no mention of his supposedly famous father-in-law. Uh, but he does make mention of another poet named Michael Drayton. He, he treated Michael Drayton, and he was a well-known poet and playwright of the period. And he wrote the excellent poet, Michael Drayton. Hmm. <laughs> so he, he seemed to, you know, understand that, you know, he seemed to admire poets. And that John writers Paul. like to be acknowledged. I mean, right. how, how could um, he? How could he have ever talked to his father-in-law again if he hasn't acknowledged him as, a, as an excellent poet? I mean, again, exactly. this evidence, Catherine, that you've assembled, really is making an extraordinarily powerful case, to which my conspiratorial mind says, "Why is academia so stupid?" as to insist on something which on the face of it is blatantly absurd. I know. I, I'm still puzzled by it because, I mean, if you're spending your whole life studying Shakespeare, you, you really don't want to know who he was. You, you're just satisfied that there's nothing, I mean, without even trying to, you know, take a look. You know, to me, that's tragic. And um, it's, it's almost, a, you know, a, Neglect, neglectful, and it, in a way irresponsible to your students. Um, well, again, but, for those with conspiratorial bumps, this is looking more and more like a carefully calculated plan as opposed to just a series of mistakes because when, when you know, the original scholars who got it wrong are gone, there's no reason why modern scholars 
should be attached to their findings. Why not do your own new research and become incredibly well-known for having proved that William Shakespeare, the poet, was not William Shakespeare, Stratford man? Right. Um, yeah, I... I, I don't understand why they don't do that, but um, uh, even even the um, the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, which is kind of the bastion of um, you know Shakespeare scholars, um, they were offered by uh, one of our organizations. Uh, you could see it on, on doubtaboutwill.org. Um, they were offered a forty thousand pound. Uh, reward to take take part in a trial. That's what about about about, 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 about sixty thousand sixty thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's that's and not, they're a registered charity, and so um, this organization was offering them that amount of money just to appear in a trial and pr- and kind of prove their case. Right. And they to this day they have not you know taken a taken it up. <laughs> If they were so confident, um, they they would have appeared. And um, well, let's go back to more taking the con- money. Yeah, more contemporary or lifetime evidence. There's a William Camden in your in your list of evidence that knew Stratford Mann. How did he know him, and why would why would his testimony be interesting? Yes, he um, he approved um, the coat of arms for the Stratford man, actually his father, his father, John Shakespeare, um, he, he, he approved this coat of arms for them because he was the um, high, high member of the College of Arms that, you know, that grants these. And um, this same William Camden, he, he was a historian, and in 1605, he wrote a book, and in one of the chapters, he, he made a list of 10 poets that would be remembered by future generations. And one of them was William Shakespeare, the, you know, the great author. Right. So he certainly knew and admired the great author, but, and he also knew the Stratford man, but he made no connection between the two. <laughs> you know? And the academics completely, I mean, in that era, heraldry and family lineage and all, I mean, it still is. It's huge in England who your family is. It's just, yes. it's just, it boggles the mind that these so-called serious scholars look at this growing body of evidence. We haven't exhausted the well yet, folks. So stay tuned after the break. And nobody says, wait a minute, sir. Can I have some more porridge? This makes no sense. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's why me and a lot of other people are trying to get the word out to the general public so they can put pressure on these. Okay, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is citizen scholar, historian Catherine Chilgen, and we're talking about will the real William Shakespeare please stand up? Now, for those of you who like mysteries, I mean, again, I'm my conspiratorial sense my spidey sense, is really resonating because this, to me, looks like not just a little trivial hoax or a series of you know, misappropriations or concatenations of mistakes, but 
this is beginning to feel like something that was really planned, given the extraordinary impact of the great poet William Shakespeare on all of history. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.